You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. In the late 19th century, an unknown girl's body was pulled from a river in France. Although she was never identified, you've probably seen her face before. In fact, you may have even kissed her. <laughs> Is that a good one? Like that, was, that, that like gets your interest. You're like, what the what? That was that was pretty good. I'd listen to this. I, w- <laughs> I would listen to your segment if I wasn't on the show. Let's be honest. The economy's kind of in the toilet right now. It's led many people to engage in what financial experts refer to as the shadow economy. What's the shadow economy, you ask? Well, put it this way. People are trading ice cream for almost everything. When you think breakfast foods, there are probably a couple that come to mind, and it's probably the same few foods for most of us. But why is that? Where did this idea even come from? And more importantly, who wanted us to think this way and why? We had breakfast for our wedding. Remember that? I, I do. Yeah, we had breakfast for my wedding, too. You kind of stole the you, idea because you came nah. after us. <laughs> yeah, but we did it. We did it. Like, I don't want to say right. It's not like yours was wrong. <laughs> I don't want to say better, either, because that'll make you feel bad. Oh, okay. Um, but you kind of are saying better. All <laughs> of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, in this segment, there'll be a little bit of French, and I am not really experienced in pronouncing anything in French, but you got an A in college in advanced French, so you should know a lot about pronunciation, right? Yeah, we are in luck. Um, I Quick story, I put off taking French uh, until my senior year, actually my super senior year, so it was the semester after my senior year. It was really the only credit I needed to graduate. And I took French in high school, but I waited so long, I didn't remember any of the French that I had learned in high school. So to get it done, because I didn't want to spend an entire extra year in college, I took the advanced French class, uh, which means yeah. that you're supposed to kind of Makes sense. Know Good decision. French. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know a thing. So I was bombing, failing every single test. While all that was going on, I broke my ankle. I mean, it was just, it was horrible. It was a terrible time. So when I broke my ankle, I'm on crutches. I go to see my professor. I tell her, I say, hey, I've been really trying because I had been. I just cannot learn this French. I need this credit to graduate from college. Please help me. And she just looked at me and said, I appreciate you coming in. You're good. And I got an A on every single test the rest of the year. Yeah. So it looks like I'll be doing most of the pronunciation during this segment (laughs) is what it sounds like to me. It sounds like you and I I I know. (laughs) I can't reveal her name because it might open up some Sounds like you and I know the exact same amount of French probably, (laughs) which is none. Well, Dave, changing gears a little bit, we're going to jump over and kind of connect two things that maybe don't seem very connected uh, on the surface. We're going to connect kind of late 19th century unsolved murders 
to CPR. Okay, so let's let's get there. So in the late 19th century in Paris, a body of a teenage girl was pulled out of the Seine River, and although she was never identified, you've probably seen her before. The body of the girl, who was estimated to be about 16 years old, showed no signs of violence, leading to some speculation that she had drowned herself intentionally. After recovering the body, officials put her on display in a mortuary and attempted to get someone to come forward to identify her. But ultimately, no one did. Due to this, she came to be known as Le Inconnu de la Seine, or Unknown Woman of the Seine. The physician who performed the autopsy was evidently so struck by the serene look on the girl's face that he created a plaster cast that he placed on her face to preserve it. Now, Dave, evidently some copies were made of this cast, but at this point, we need to flash forward a few years to the 1950s and 60s. It was during these decades that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and CPR, as we know them today, were invented and taught to medical students around the world. A man named Archer Gordon of the American Heart Association noticed a pressing issue with the education of the processes, though. Medical students were practicing on each other and often hurt each other, sometimes breaking ribs or causing bruising. Also, on top of that, the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation aspect of the training, well, that's just sort of weird, isn't it? Gordon rightly noticed that because of the human limitations on practice, students weren't getting the full experience of actually learning how to perform CPR accurately. So Gordon went to work and contacted a toy maker named Asmund Lerdal to create a mannequin with airways and an accurate human feel with a collapsible chest that could be used to practice CPR. Lerdal evidently was familiar with the plaster mask of the unknown woman of the same and felt that the peaceful nature of her face would make a perfect face for the mannequin, since the face was peaceful and non-intimidating. The mannequin was created and named Recessa Ann, or Annie for short. The original company that manufactured the mannequins, the Lairdow Company, actually still makes them today. And according to their website, over 300 million people have been trained on an Annie mannequin, earning her the title, the most kissed girl in the world. Now, from an ethical standpoint, though, Dave, although the practice of creating and distributing death masks from plaster was pretty common in the late 19th century, it's pretty hard to imagine legally that you could copy the image of a deceased person and then widely distribute it without their family's consent. We're sort of in a middle ground here looking towards the future and then looking towards the past in this case. But nonetheless, pretty interesting connection. I looked up mannequin heads and I (laughs) wish I hadn't. I mean, this is some of the most disturbing stuff I've ever seen. (laughs) Jay, a couple of weeks ago, we went kind of deep on cryptocurrency with a few segments that highlighted the, uh, let's just call it, unique nature of cryptocurrency. And really, in my opinion, one of the things that makes crypto so confusing is its place in our economy as actual useful currency, right? I mean, like in America, we only know one way to pay for things, cold, hard cash. But with that said, aside from crypto, there is another way that we often pay for things, and sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. Jay, I'm referring to what economists call the shadow economy. The shadow economy, at its most basic, is an informal means of payment. So this could be in the form of cash, like maybe you hire a babysitter and you pay them $10 an hour with cash from your pocket. 
money that is not reported on your taxes or on theirs, or it could be in the form of barter, like, Jay, if you agree to mow my lawn for an entire summer, you provide me a service, and I give you uh, maybe a hat in return, a good given as payment. <laughs> Which you would do. More than fair. <laughs> Jay, what's an example maybe of a time that you have participated in the shadow economy, either in barter or in paying somebody for something off the book? Seems like you're trying to trap me from like a legal standpoint here. <laughs> like you're some, this like this podcast has, will be reported to the you know, IRS. Like this podcast has all been some elaborate scheme cooked up by you to report me to the IRS. There's just off, just off camera there's some irs officials here (laughs) they're like we're so close (laughs) this we've been undercover for months (laughs) yeah i mean we hired a babysitter uh for a few years whenever we had our kids uh yeah so we contributed a substantial amount of money to the shadow economy (laughs) but jay one of the most fascinating examples of the shadow economy in in the form of barter not cash is well known at this point by locals in vermont of all places Jay, the NPR podcast Planet Money recently reported on a shadow economy fueled by Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Ben & Jerry's, the popular ice cream company that can be found either in the form of brick-and-mortar stores in large to mid-sized cities or at your local grocer, virtually everywhere else, is known for its delicious pints of creative ice cream flavors. Flavors like Chubby Hubby, Cherry Garcia, or the ever-popular fish food that's fish with a PH. But Jay, it's also known as an employer who adds some, uh, let's call it whimsical, employee perks to its hiring practices. As part of the employee hiring perk package, every single Ben & Jerry's employee has the option to take home three pints of fresh ice cream every day. (laughs) Not once a week, not twice a week. Every single Seems day. a little overkill. Like, you could just put one. You'd be a million in, pounds. One, you'd be like, whoa, I could take on one every day? Like, why three? Now, obviously, not every single one of the over 1,500 Ben & Jerry's employees nationwide is going to take them up on the offer every day of the week. But still, they could. And Jay, if they did, it would be over 400,000 pints of ice cream taken out per year or roughly $9,000 in lost profit per day. Now, an interesting aspect about this free ice cream is that while a lot of it is your standard vanilla or chocolate or maybe a Ben & Jerry's specialty flavor like Chunky Monkey, a good portion of it is what's called seconds, meaning it's a flavor that happened by mistake. Maybe some cookie dough spilled over into the strawberry or some caramel chunks found their way into the wrong kind of chocolate mix. The seconds, Jay, cannot be sold, but they can be given to employees, and they can be bartered. Amy Weller, a veteran employee of Ben & Jerry's since 1992, confirmed to Planet Money that while Ben & Jerry's employees are popular friends to have over because of the ice cream hookup, it's the seconds that find their way into fueling the shadow economy. Ben and Jerry's employees trade these ice cream one-offs, accidental flavors that may never happen again, for tangible goods. They trade them for haircuts, for trips to the movie theater, for pizza, for babysitting. (laughs) 
with Weller estimating that each Ben and Jerry's pint jay, especially the seconds, carries around 5 to $6 in bartering power. Some employees have even traded them for big ticket items. Like one employee reports trading pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream every year for his contact lenses. Jay, while the pandemic saw folks barter things like toilet paper or yeast as a replacement for cash due to supply chain issues, the ice cream exchange going on with Ben & Jerry's is wholly unique because while at its core, it's just a nice work perk that lets people eat ice cream as much as they want, what it really functions as is virtually a daily cash bonus. A tradable commodity that's buying power is only limited by the creativity of the Ben and Jerry's employees. And that comes one pair of contact lenses or one fresh hot pizza at a time. When was the last time that you had a pint of Ben and Jerry's? It's it's been forever. I, I feel the same way about Ben and Jerry's that I feel about Cinnabon. Like it, in theory it sounds great. Like I'd love to eat it, but I just I feel guilty eating it it is far and above head and shoulders better than any other ice cream like if you went back and tried it you would understand why people would haircuts for it or movie tickets for it it makes total sense do you have a favorite flavor uh, i'm a fan of shoot hang on let me think before i answer that because i'm trying to think what it's called um yeah sounds like you're a major well fan. i just got i was wanting to make sure i got it right <laughs> So Dave, I think just one of those intrinsic things that we all sort of have in common is this concept that there are some foods that are just breakfast foods and then there are other foods that are not. Like Dave, when I say breakfast, like what foods come to mind immediately? Bacon and eggs. Right, of course. Right? I mean, that's what most people would say. So my question was, how does this image... Bacon eggs. <laughs> now you're getting a little crazy. Well, I like now. I like sides. I, I will say I don't like just like if, if you just gave me eggs and I love eggs, I'd be like, well, I need something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, my question was like, where did this image of bacon and eggs being a breakfast food like where did this come from? And Dave, we actually have to go back in time a little bit. So let's go back and see if we can track this down. To find an answer, we actually have to go back pretty far to the early 1900s. Enter a man named Edward Bernays. Bernays was born in Vienna in 1891 and actually had a pretty famous uncle, the father of psychology himself, Sigmund Freud. His connection to Freud in some ways shaped his career in marketing. Bernays took a particular interest in how unconscious desires and thoughts drove our everyday behaviors, something his uncle had obviously written extensively on. In fact, during World War I, the U.S. government department called the Committee on Public Information came knocking to recruit Bernays to develop propaganda that would shape Americans' thinking about the war effort abroad. So after the war, Bernays created his own marketing agency that aimed to combine emerging theories of psychology into the world of marketing. And in 1928, the agency was put on the map when the CEO of the American Tobacco Company came to him with a problem. Cigarette sales among women were almost non-existent. Smoking, which had long been a symbol of masculinity, had almost alienated women in a way. And Big Tobacco was looking for a way to get women to light up. Bernays hit the ground running to solve the problem in three phases. First, he pushed the color green as fashionable by organizing galas featuring the color for some of society's most prominent trendsetters in the fashion world since the packaging of the Lucky Strike cigarette brand was green. 
Then, Bernays pushed photos of slim female models smoking into the public consciousness to associate the 20s flapper image with smoking. And finally, Bernays pushed a campaign of associating smoking with women's liberation in ads throughout the country. Suddenly, the image of the modern liberated woman included women holding cigarettes and sales among women soared. And that's sort of how Bernays operated, Dave. Like he wanted to reform public consciousness in a way in order to change the image around a product that he wanted to market. But his most long-lived campaign came years earlier in 1922. In 1922, the Beech Nut Packing Company hired Bernays to solve a problem. Their declining sales of two key products to their bottom line, bacon and eggs. As many Americans moved from agricultural work to industrial work, the idea of a big, hearty breakfast for long days of labor had been replaced. Emerging research on diet had also led Americans to replace fatty foods with foods that were lower in calories. So Bernays went to work first by contacting a resident physician, asking him a simple question. What is healthier, a hearty breakfast or a light breakfast? This particular physician responded that since the body loses energy throughout the night, that he assumed a hearty breakfast would be more beneficial for overall health. So Bernays asked him to send a letter to 5,000 fellow physicians asking if they agreed, and suddenly Bernays's firm had some ammunition. Newspapers around the country began publishing nearly identical stories touting that physicians agreed bacon and eggs were back. Bacon and egg sales soared and cemented the idea of bacon and eggs as a breakfast food in the minds of American consumers. Bernays, over his long career, would go on to run some of the most successful marketing campaigns of the 20th century, working with brands from Betty Crocker to Dixie Cups. Bernays' biographer says it this way, Hired to sell a product or service, he instead sold whole new ways of behaving, which appeared obscure, but over time reaped huge rewards for his clients and redefined the very texture of American life. But Dave, this success did not come without criticism. In fact, many leveled criticism at Bernays for his approach being manipulative and fundamentally dangerous. It was even reported, Dave, that Joseph Goebbels, the chief minister of propaganda for Nazi Germany, was a fan of Bernays and kept a copy of his book, Crystallizing Public Opinion, on his personal bookshelf. Bernays would go on to work for several organizations for free throughout his career, uh, including the NAACP and, ironically, on an anti-smoking campaign. But what I think is interesting here, Dave, is that we have this idea of bacon and eggs as breakfast just sort of imprinted in our brains as if it was our idea. But most of the time when we have these ideas, we have them because a marketing agency at some point has wanted us to have that idea. A lot of our traditions and just common habits were planned in a boardroom somewhere. For me, at least, it really challenges me to think more about where a lot of these sort of intrinsic ideas even come from. Have you ever seen the Back to the Future trilogy? Uh, it's been a long time, and they were kind of like, I didn't watch them like all back to back. Like It's like I watched Back yeah. to the Future, and then like many years went by well, before I watched the, the other skip ones. Skip the third one, but the first one and second one are good. Um, but this just for some reason, Bernays, he feels like he's a character from from like Back to the Future 2, that he got some kind of knowledge of what the future could be. And then he stole it and went to a different timeline. So like he knew that making bacon <laughs> and eggs a big deal 
would explode in value. So he then went back in time and influenced people to like it. We got to talk about this before the episode ends. I wonder whose wedding meal was better. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, who did it first? I don't think it's about you know, who did it first. I think it's I about did. who did it better. I think like that kind of matters in the discussion. Like you, if yours was better, like you had time to improve on my original idea, which was to have breakfast for dinner at the wedding. Here's the thing, though, and I apologize in advance for this. So I had breakfast for dinner. Because yours was so forgettable, perhaps, <laughs> that I forgot you. You had better just stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go start editing you out of all my wedding photos right now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sis and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Le Econon. <laughs> no, let me try again. <laughs> I don't know. Le, le in canoe. I think it's Le in canoe. Let me, let me do this. Le, Send this over to me. Le, le in canoe. <laughs> Okay, let me try it again. Lay in canoe de la Seine. Say. Okay, that's that's Seine. The Seine River, right? The Seine. Seine. I think it's Saint. Hang on. I did a Google thing earlier. Let me try it one more time. Seine River. Seine River. Let me look at this YouTube video. Hold on. I'll get to the point. I I really know more French than you. Jokes aside. The the French guy just said "sen." Okay, well you say it however you okay. feel. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Three. But I did I did get an A. Two, one. <laughs> Due to this, she came to be known as Le Incon de la. <laughs> Three, two, one.